encourage Bradley because of the idea that he wants us to learn things that we don't already know. There are some powerful, powerful lyrics in what we were singing a few minutes ago, and, and so I'm, I'm thankful uh, to be able to learn new songs like that. Very, very encouraging. And um, I guess you talked about it, but it's on the Facebook page, right? I think that's where I saw it and where I listened, and um, just a beautiful arrangement there as well. If you think back several weeks, way back into August, on a Sunday night, we did an introductory lesson where we kind of overviewed the life of Peter. And you really, in one lesson, you're not going to get everything about his life. But our goal that evening was to think about his life and use that as a setup to say, okay, let's look at the guy and let's think about his life and let's think about some of what he went through. And then from there, we want to kind of launch into a study then of some of what he wrote being 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And so we did that back in August, and then I was gone to Atlanta the fifth Sunday, and there was a guest speaker the first Sunday, and then last week was small groups. And so over the passage of time, there have been several weeks since we talked about Peter. So I want you to try to pull him back into your mind and think about his life and think about what he went through, think about his experience. And then as you're thinking about him again, think about this letter uh, that's written. And so I want to do a little bit of background. Not, I, I typically don't go real deep on background, especially in a setting like this, but I think it's appropriate to, to think in terms of what's going on as this is written. Uh, chapter 5, verse 13 gives us the idea uh, that this was written from Rome. Uh, he refers to the, the place, uh, send, or she who is in Babylon sends you greetings. And to those early Christians, that reference to Babylon, that would have been understood as a reference to Rome. Uh, the date of the letter, and I sure wish they did things more like we do, because when you're trying to read about books in the Bible, there's always pages and pages rent, rent, written about, okay, when do we think this was written? And they could have solved it all by dating the letter. But they didn't do things that way. And so some scholars believe this letter probably was written about A.D. 65. They base that on a couple of things. Uh, Nero committed suicide, according to history, in A.D. 68. Church historian Eusebius understood that both Peter and Paul had been martyred at about the same time while Nero was still emperor, so the writing would have needed to have come before he's dead. And so uh, some people will say, well, let's think in terms of about AD 65. Now, why would you write this letter? And this is where you get into some things that are really interesting because some of the reasons that this letter was written to those Christians, when you think about 2015 and, and you think about what Bill was just praying, because it's very true, you, you've got a, a society today or you've got a world today that really is trying to encroach on Christianity, is trying to, in a lot of ways, take away uh, freedom and, and attack what we stand for, he's writing to some readers who are going to suffer. Already some suffering going on. One of the themes that runs through First Peter is the idea uh, of suffering. And uh, when you think there, there are four times that suffering's referenced in these five chapters in what's very, very much a brief letter. Uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Chapter 4, verses 12 through uh, 19. And then again in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And so there is, there, there's some suffering that's being addressed. He's encouraging Christians in Asia Minor. 
It's a call to confidence in the power of God. He's calling for renewed hope. He's going to talk to them about finding meaning in their suffering or at least in, you know, find meaning in the idea that you're going to endure this suffering. And then one of the other things that's going on in this is he's going to be talking to these Christians about how do you respond to to, to, to a former way of life now you've got, you've got the way you lived before and you've got all these relationships you had before. You've got all these institutions that, that are still out there. How do you respond to that as a Christian? And how do you apply the gospel in your marriage? And how do you apply the gospel in your family? And how do you apply the gospel in your workplace? Because there seems to exist, when you read what's going on, there, there seems to exist some tension between the Christians and the culture. And so another way to say it would be, you know, one of the big questions Peter's addressing is how does the church respond to a society that's trying to make life miserable for Christians? And you begin to see why that that, that can be applicable to us. Fred Craddock asks the question this way. He said, how are believers to remain in tension with a non-believing culture and yet relate to that culture in such ways as will gain favorable report, rapport and bring new converts to faith. That's a really good way of saying it. You know, do we just argue and alienate? Do we just blow people off? Or do, do we relate in such a way where they know that we love and, and we're trying to relate to them and we're trying to establish rapport so that we can teach, so that we can have an influence, so that we can reflect Christ? So it's a really good question for 2015. Now, as you read, it's worth noting that the, the current state of suffering is the beginning of this letter is being written. It doesn't appear that the Christians are dealing with torture at this point. It doesn't appear that they're dealing with imprisonment at this point, although there are some allusions to the idea that that could be forthcoming, that could be on the way. One of the authors in writing about this, he said it appears to be more about Christians chafing under unexpected resentment intolerance and slander from non-Christian neighbors or perhaps even their own families. In other words, they've become Christians and now they're, they're suffering some things that they just didn't expect to suffer and it's because they're Christians. And so that kind of is the intro, some of the background to this letter. And so when you start off, and we're not going to spend a bunch of time in verses 1 and 2 tonight, uh, but he begins with an address, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So, so you've got this greeting, and, and we're going to come back to that because he uses some identifiers there. He uses some identity sort of language. And when we get to chapter 2, into the you're a chosen race, you're a a royal priesthood, when we talk about all that, we may come back and, and talk about some of these identifiers in the first couple of verses. But tonight, we want to focus our study in this praise to God that's in this greeting, verses 3, 4, and 5. That's where we want to spend our time this evening. 
He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's typical for a letter written in this time to open with a greeting that offers up praise to God. And that's what's going on here. But in this praise that's being offered up to God, there is this reminder of what we have, what they have, what we have, what we, what's available to us, who we are. So let's look at verse 3, and, and basically what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few minutes in verse 3, a few minutes in verse 4, a few minutes in verse 5, and that'll be our study for this evening. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see that born-again language, and, and I don't know what happens in your mind, but you, you normally will try to keep your study in the letter where you are, but I cannot see born-again language without thinking about John chapter 3, verse 3, where Jesus is involved in that discussion, and, and He makes that statement, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You think about that. And for Peter's readers, this is big. This isn't primarily, this isn't a Jewish audience. These are Gentile Christians. These are people who, you know, Jews would have had a mindset. They're used to thinking, okay, I was born a Jew. And so but with that comes, you know, I'm in because of who I am. Even though in Christianity, they needed to learn a new way of thinking. Well, these are Gentiles. And so to be born again into this living hope, that's big. And he talks about... According to His great mercy. You think of Little League, where there's a mercy rule when you start thinking about the idea of mercy. And so in Little League, if one team by a certain point in the game gets way ahead by a certain amount, you call the game off. There's, there's a mercy rule. We're not going to let this suffering continue on. By God's mercy... There's the idea of the, there of something undeserved. There's the idea of compassion, the idea of kindness, the idea of, of pity. Uh, back in Luke 1 verse 50. And this is Mary's song of praise as she's chosen to carry the child, the baby Jesus. And as she launches that song of praise in Luke chapter 1 verse 50, she talks about mercy being bestowed upon those who fear Him. And he talks about being alive. You're, you're alive. You've been born again to a living hope but because Jesus Christ was raised. A living hope means a hope that uh, there, there's activity and there, there should be growth. There, you know, I'm, a, I'm alive in this. And the background concept to the letter is you're, you're going to go through some things but you're not going to go through them without hope. And we could spend more, ver on, more time on verse 4, but, but when you think about what we want to walk away with, one of the things that ought to be overriding here is that as you think about what we have access to, God gets all the credit. It's about what God has done. We're praising God. 
It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because of that, I've been born again. Because of that, I have mercy. Because of that, I have a living hope. It's about what God's done, not what they've done. Not what you've done, not what I've done. And then you get to verse 4 and he says, Born again to, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Maybe at some point in your life you have been the recipient of an inheritance. Uh, working with Heritage Christian from time to time, People who like our work and people who are, are actively involved in wanting to train preachers and, and ministers and those sorts of things, they make a decision that they want to do that through their estate and so they leave the university with an inheritance. One donor recently, he, what he said, I'm going to set this up, I'm going to treat your university like it's a child. In other words, I've got my three children and I'm going to treat the university as a fourth, so everybody's going to get a fourth. That's the inheritance. Another conversation just recently, a man said, I'm really troubled by my son, he's turned his back on God, he's not, he's not, I've taught him all this and he's turned his back on it, I'm not going to include him in my inheritance. And we also understand that, see, a person can make out a will that says, when I pass, I'm going to leave these things to these people, but they can change their mind. While they're alive, they can make the decision that they're going to do things in a different way. That's why an estate plan is, from an accounting standpoint, we may know somebody's got the university in their estate, but we can't put that on the books while they're still alive because they may change their mind. But see, this is different. The other thing, when you think about an inheritance and you think about estate plans and all of that, my wife, she works in a law office and she'll talk from time to time about how they've got to be very, very... They work very hard to make sure that if somebody is putting something in their will or if somebody's changing their will, they're trying to document the idea that this person cannot be questioned was in their right mind when they set up their estate because we as people, it's sad, but when a loved one passes... That's often when we get in a fuss and we get in a fight. We're going to fight about who gets what. But then there's this inheritance. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. You know, physical things perish. Physical things may become impure. They may be flawed. Some things fade over time, but, but, but what Peter's trying to instill within his readers here is, you're maybe getting ready to suffer some things, but guess what? This inheritance, that you're in the will, and this inheritance, God isn't going to change His mind. He's not going to rewrite the will. It's not, you're not going to arrive one day at the pearly gates and find out God has changed the plan. This is in stone. And then maybe one of the most powerful phrases in this entire three verses that we're talking about tonight, he says, reserved in heaven for you. I don't know how you travel. But see, I don't like traveling without a reservation. And I've probably told you that before, but if I'm leaving on a, on a trip, you know, I want to know kind of where I'm going to be each night. I want to know that I've got a room reserved. Now, one of the guys I work with, and, and we've traveled together some, he'll get on the road. And about three in the afternoon, he'll, he'll get on the phone and he'll start calling hotels. And he'll know about where he's going to be. And he'll just start calling, trying to find a room. I don't like that. 
doesn't fit my personality at all. I want to know where I'm going to be. And it maybe is from growing up where we'd be on family vacation and we'd pull in in the afternoon and this hotel's too expensive and this hotel's full and we're driving all down the road and all I wanted to do is get in the swimming pool. But, you know, we got to find a room first. I want to know where I'm going to be. And it's irritating if they ever mess up the reservation. Back in the spring, I was down in Houston and I was speaking on a Wednesday night a couple of hours north of Houston, and I was supposed to fly out pretty early the next morning, so I'd originally booked a hotel near where I was speaking. But then somebody in my brain finally woke me up to the idea that if you stay at that hotel, you're going to fight Houston rush hour, morning rush, all the way to the airport, and that didn't seem very smart, so I changed my reservation to a hotel right by the airport. I thought, I'll drive in there late. Well, I get in there, and there's a guy at the counter. It's about 11 o'clock. And I realize he's having a problem. And you kind of, you're like, well, I hope that's his problem and not going to be one for me too. And so I step up and she says, all I've got left is a smoking room. And man, that's just, that makes your heart fall. Now, I grew up in Kentucky. My high school had a smoking area. I couldn't go to class. You walked through smoke between every class. I had a band director... You know, it was very common. He, he, he directed the band with a Marlboro light in this hand and a Dr. Pepper over here. I mean, we were around it all the time. But when you get away from it, and then know you've got to get in a room, it's like, oh, man. Well, I didn't want to go wandering around a not very good area of Houston at 11 p.m. looking for another room, so I took the room. But, man, when they mess up your reservation, it's irritating. God isn't going to mess up the reservation And Peter's wanting his audience to understand and remember that you're traveling and you're going through some things and it may be a rough journey, but but there is a reservation confirmed for you. And that's what we got to remember coming out of this. That's what he wants them to remember. When you think about verse 4, we are included in God's estate plan. There is an inheritance for us. That's a big message. It's an especially big message again for Gentile Christians. People who've maybe been told along the way somewhere, well, you really weren't God's people, but maybe you are. Well, you're in the plan, Peter's trying to say. And again, this, this, this is based on God's work, not yours. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Peter's going to eventually write, For you once were not a people... But now you're the people of God. You'd not received mercy, but you have received mercy. Now you've received mercy. In other words, your family. Chapter 3, verse 7 of verse 1 Peter. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That idea of being an heir, it runs through 1 Peter. Chapter 3, verse 9. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. I like what Paul wrote to the Galatians over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. He said, And if you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to the promise. And I mentioned how sometimes when loved ones pass, there ends up being a lot of fighting that goes on because our, our families are kind of dysfunctional sometimes. But this inheritance, this estate plan, we're all in it for the same amount. We're all going to be in heaven one day. And man, if you're thinking that you may be going through some things and you may be suffering and you may be wondering if it's really worth it to stay in tension, because you could eliminate the tension 
You know, if the world's if the world's making it hard for you to be a Christian, you can eliminate that tension. You just quit living like a Christian, and then they leave you alone. So the question: Am I going to am I going to am I going to go through the pain? Well, he's saying, yeah. Peter's saying you need to go through the pain because there's an inheritance waiting. Then you get to verse five, and he says, "Who are protected." by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A salvation revealed, that's exciting. I I think about how far we've come in the area of um, having children and that kind of thing. You know, back in the day, if you and your wife are expecting a child, you kind of found out what you were having in the labor and delivery room. The baby is born and you know you've got a boy. Or the baby's born you know you've got a girl. And uh, my mom and dad, they painted on a hunch. And that's why I started out life in a pink bedroom. <laughs> At least I've got something to blame. If, you know, if my life falls apart, I can blame it on what they did to me by putting me in a pink room, I guess. But today... You know, when we were having children, you, you could find out. And I'm an accountant, you know, I'm, I'm like, we, we, we need to know and it would be crazy not to know because we need to plan for this and why would, you, why would you not take information that you could have? And so we wanted to plan. But today, we have gender reveal parties. I went to my first one this year. And it was kind of exciting. We, we, you got there and you kind of got to, well, you dressed, you, you voted the way you were, you dressed the way you were voting. And so I had a pink shirt on. You know, I was voting for a girl, and they had a girl, but it was very exciting. And then they had this cake, and, and it was covered in icing, and so you really couldn't tell. And the way you found out what the child was going to be is when they cut the cake, the inside of the cake was pink. Man, I love that. It's exciting what we're doing nowadays. Peter's writing about a salvation that's ready to be revealed. And normally, if, you know, if there's something that we kind of build up emphasis on a reveal, it's, it's important, you don't want to miss it. Sometimes there's a press conference. It gets very exciting. You see, you think about our salvation. We know about it, but we don't completely understand it. And yet God says it's ready to be revealed in the last time. He talks about people who are protected by the power of God through faith. That word protected, when you look back at the original meaning, it's a word that's often used in a military sense. The idea of a military being able to offer protection. And God is saying this salvation that's ready to be revealed, protected by the power of God through faith. Now, writing to Christians who are going to suffer, does this mean that God's protection is going to prevent them from being harmed physically? Well, I don't think it means that at all. Now, God could choose to do things that way, but remember with the story that we're talking about, we talked about last week, there's this upper story and then there's this lower story, us living life, God working His plan in an upper story. And when you think about protected by the power of God, what we're talking about is His salvation, what He's got in store for us, the idea that that is there, He he has set that up. It's in the upper story, and and that cannot be taken away. It's spiritual protection. 
Turn back to John chapter 10, and, and sometimes I fear I'm guilty of overusing certain passages of Scripture, but when, it, when, you, when you talk about being protected by the power of God, God being able to protect what we've committed to Him, all those sorts of things, Jesus talking in John chapter 10, He says some things that I, th- I think what He says here communicates the concept in a great way. The little paragraph heading for me is Jesus asserting His deity. But in verse 27, He says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish. And then He says this, and this is that protection idea, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. And then He says, My Father who's given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. To me, that communicates God's protection in an excellent way. God holds us in His hand, and no one is able to snatch us away. You think about His power. Power to create. Talked about that this morning. His power to raise a son. Do you not think that He has the power to protect what He set up for us? You think about it this way. God has done the heavy lifting. Our role is simply holding on to our faith. That's why He's protected by the power of God through faith. Faith is not a passive dependence. Chapter 1, verse 2, where we, we kind of read through that as he's describing who this letter's going to, he talks about some people who have obeyed Jesus Christ. Faith is obedience. Faith is me actively yielding my life to Him. F.J.A. Hort said, Faith is the human condition that brings divine strengthening into action. And because of His power... And my, my active faith, the guarantee, stays in place. And it's ready to be revealed. That's why there's this recurring theme also, and, and we'll see more of that in, in probably Second Peter, the idea of living ready, living in anticipation. And so the, the takeaway out of verse 5, what I, what I want us to remember there is, you know, no matter how long the wait... God's salvation is going to be worth it. People who are at least my age, you might be remembering this if you're a little bit younger. Uh, and for those of you all who are younger, there was a years ago Heinz ketchup. And the commercial, the ad campaign was all about holding the ketchup up over really good looking food and waiting for the ketchup to hit the plate. You remember that? And they even had a song, It's Making Me Wait. And they're singing about anticipation. It was a great ad. It made you hungry every time. Are we living in anticipation? Because some things end up not being worth the wait, but salvation isn't going to be one of them. And so Peter's writing, and as he praises God, he's writing to some folks who were... You know, it's going to be very important for them to remember the why. And it's important for us. In 2015, it's hard to know exactly what the future holds. 
But we ought to be confident in the idea that these words of praise to God for these original readers, these original, the, the original audience, that ought to be a source of strength for us too. Especially as that chafing under a culture that's trying to undermine who we are continues to gain strength. Uh, just recently in Jackson, Mississippi, there was a Friday night football game where the band didn't get to perform because the band had, had included How Great Thou Art in their halftime show and it had turned into a big thing and so they weren't getting to perform. Uh, this week I noticed there was a coach under investigation for possibly having prayed with his football players. Remember back in June, there was this shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. Some folks had shown up to study the Bible together and a guy comes in and opens fire on them. And then even today in Selma, there was a shooting in a church, although first glance at that, it looks like that's probably a domestic thing. That's probably not an attack on Christianity. So we don't know what the future's going to hold. But Peter's just trying to help these Jesus followers get their mind right so that no matter what the suffering ends up being, they realize that in the end, it's going to be worth it. And so tonight, is your reservation confirmed? If you're a Christian, if you're, if you're walking in the light, if you're living for Him, you've got a confirmed reservation. Don't give up on that. If you're here tonight and you're not sure your reservation is confirmed, it's a yes-no answer, it's not a maybe. And so I would ask you to think about your life. If you're not a Christian, the first thing is you need to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. You need to be in relationship like we talked about this morning. Because the question becomes, is your hope in that great inheritance? Because if you're God's child, the inheritance is there and it's guaranteed and it's not going to be taken away. And if you think about those questions, if you ask yourself those questions and there is something amiss, don't walk out of here with it amiss tonight. If there's something you need to make right, let us pray with you and for you. If you're ready to become a Christian, let that be known. If you simply got questions about how to be right with God, you're really not sure what those answers are, ask one of us and we'd love nothing more than to sit down and study the Bible with you. If you have a need tonight while Bradley leads us in the song that's been selected, let it be known while we stand and while we sing.